It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, welcome back to New Scientist Weekly. This is your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Claire Wilson. Welcome to the show episode 188 and we're recording this on may the 3rd coming up this week we hear from aliens or at least we hear when we might theoretically hear from aliens and we meet the life form with seven genomes we're also going to be looking at what covid does to your gut microbiome and we're going to be hearing this (laughs) was that your gut microbiome rowan I hope you haven't just stopped everyone from listening. It's almost stopped me listening. No, um, don't be put off by grunting. Um, There's more of that to come, but you'll find out why. Uh, Joining us on the pod this week is news editor Alexandra Thompson and reporter Michael LePage. We're going to start this week with an amazing story that you've been reporting on, Claire, about near-death experiences. I love the music. (laughs) <laughs> Let's start with a recap of um, what, what are they? What are near-death experiences? These are those strange experiences reported by people who came very close to death. So typically their, their heart would have stopped beating and they only survived because they got medical attention and their heart was restarted. Now, sometimes while people were apparently unconscious, they report having some bizarre visions These include the sensation of moving down a tunnel towards a bright light, Mm -hmm. the sensation of seeing or hearing from from deceased loved ones, or having an out-of-body experience where you kind of float up and see your own body from the outside. Sometimes even the experience of being in a higher presence. Yeah, they um, classify the near-death experiences in a number of different ways. And and as you say, some of them are classified as, you know, a religious encounter, a religious experience. It is all fascinating stuff. But what's new about it this week? Okay, well, a lot of people are very interested in near-death experiences. And um, some of those people happen to be doctors who actually work in resuscitation. So, you know, the people who are actually putting the the paddles onto people's chests... (laughs) Right, to to resurrect to restart them, to bring them to back to restart their hearts. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So so some of the patients being resuscitated, they might be literally going down a tunnel at the time, and then we drag them back. Yeah. Or, or we don't know how common it is, of course. So anyway, some doctors who work at the University of Michigan have collaborated with neuroscientists to find cases where people happen to have sensors 
placed on their head to record their brain's electrical activity at the time of their death. Wow, so these people were, they just happened to be wired up when they died. So how did they die? Yeah, well, these were all people who were in intensive care, either after a heart attack or a stroke, and they were on life support. And the doctors had judged that sadly they had no hope of recovery and would probably die soon. And as normally happens in these cases, in consultation with their relatives, they decided to switch the life support off. And the brain monitoring happened to stay in place. So these were the ideal people to investigate this subject. <laughs> Do you remember the movie Flatliners? Uh, this, yeah. is, this is what they did. Like, it's medical students who uh, deliberately knocked themselves out and then were revived by the, their comrades. And, and then they reported on what they'd seen on the other side. Well, yes. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, what happened? What did we find out in, in real life? So they, they found four people who this had happened to. And in two of them, they found unexpectedly a surge of brain activity of a particular type that has previously been proposed as a sign of consciousness. This is very high frequency brain waves in uh, specific regions of the brain at one on each side of the head, kind of roughly where your ears are. Is this supposed to be the the signature of the near-death experience then, this sort of burst of activity? Yeah, well, I mean, we we cannot be so definitive about it. And I I should point out that in these two cases, they don't know if these people even had a near-death experience. Because remember, all four of these people did die. So mm. they didn't come back and tell us if they mm, yeah. did experience anything. Yeah, okay. So obviously we don't know unless we do the plot of Flatliners. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a really hard question to study unless you were crazy enough to kind of do it deliberately like they did in that yeah. movie. I think we could say the researchers have found possible signs of consciousness at a time when we would have assumed that the brain was incapable of any meaningful activity. So it is one small piece of evidence suggesting that some of these near-death experiences could have been subjectively real to the person. Um, It doesn't mean that they really saw their dead relatives, of course, or, or God. Ooh, now that near-death experience story could almost have been worthy of the sci-fi alert but we've got something even more sci-fi for you i think this is when we report on something that has already been written about in science fiction rowan what's you got for us uh, so this is about the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and you know how tv and radio transmissions like leak out from earth and like go on off into space Yeah, so you mean when they talk about how soap operas from the 1980s have already reached the stars? Yeah, exactly. So a couple of astronomers have looked more carefully at what this means, but not about TV and radio, but about signals that NASA have used in its deep space network to track spacecraft that have gone right out into into stellar space. Do you mean like the um, the Voyager spacecraft? Yes. So those are two of them. Voyager 1 and 2 launched in 1977. They're now in, you know, they're out of the heliosphere, out into interstellar space. But they're still transmitting and receiving messages from us. And NASA uses these uh, powerful radio antenna to send signals to them. And these astronomers now have, lo- have sort of extrapolated from that to work out which stars these signals may have reached. And when the earliest response 
could be received back on Earth if someone is there to receive them. For making the assumption that there are aliens on planets around those stars yeah. who are able to interpret and respond to the signals. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's just a just a small assumption. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, you know, if you do assume that, these two find in this paper that um, the aliens, the reply, might reach us by 2029. Oh, that's really soon. That's, that's mm. just six years away. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to put it in the diary and get ready for <laughs> a, a phone call. But, um, you know, they've looked at Voyager 1 and 2, which, as I say, have already left the solar system. But the other spacecraft are Pioneer 10 and 11 and New Horizons, which went past Pluto a few years ago on its way out. Um, and they've mapped the signals sent to these spacecraft. They've used this catalogue of stars called the Gaia Catalogue and found which star systems the signals um, would reach and when. And they found four stars that have already received these signals. We don't know there's planets there, but if there are, you know, then theoretically, you know, these signals could come back in 2029. And then the ones that, are, you know, the other signals have reached would be 2031 and 2033. In theory, I mean, that mm. theoretically is doing a lot of work there, isn't it? And um, what stars are these? Uh, they're not stars that are famous or, you know, ones with exoplanets. We don't know really anything about them because they're very faint. But, you know, certainly we don't know if they're these planets, let alone if they're hospitable to life. So, yeah. Well, they're already making a lot of assumptions. So why don't we just also assume that the stars will have planets? Yeah. Um, statistically, planets do appear to be relatively common. So it's probably a safe bet. I think that is a safe bet, certainly safer than the assumption that, you know, they're going to get a signal back, a phone call in 2029. Right, it's time for a break and some messages. We've got a couple of new weekend trips to tell you about from New Scientist Discovery. The first is the science of rewilding at Coombs Head in Devon, England. That's from the 1st to the 3rd of September this year. Discover how nature is making a comeback in the scenic Devon countryside. Go to newscientist.com slash rewilding to find out more. And the other weekender is Mysteries of the Universe in Cheshire. And that's the 29th of September to the 1st of October. Spend a weekend with some of the brightest minds in science as you explore the mysteries of the universe. And that includes a trip to Jodrell Bank to see the iconic Lovell Telescope. Go to newscientist.com slash universeweekend for more on that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're back. And Michael, you've written about this extraordinary organism that has no fewer than seven different genomes inside it. What, what is going on here? 
Yes, so this story starts around 50 years ago when a naturalist in Germany collected an alga. It's a, it's a single-celled alga of a kind called a cryptomonad, and it's been kept growing in this collection in Germany ever since. And back in 1988, some researchers took a look at it under a microscope, and they spotted what seemed to be bacteria inside these single cells. Mm. They wrote a paper about it, which has just been sort of sitting around until it was recently read by Emma George at the Scripps Institution in California. And so her team asked for a sample of this alga, and they've now sequenced it and found out exactly what's inside it and what they've discovered. Not only does this alga have a bacteria inside it, it's actually got two different kinds of endosymbiotic bacteria, and one of these bacteria is infected with a phage virus. Okay, right. Okay, so I've been keeping count here. Um, we've got the <laughs> yeah. we've got the algal cell, and then two bacteria plus a virus, three distinct genomes inside. So, what, how are we how are we getting up to seven? Okay, so to explain that, we've got to go back three billion years, and that's when one bacterium started living inside another simple cell and formed the first complex cell. So that bacterium became the mitochondrion, the energy producing structures now found mm-hmm. in all the cells in our body. And the mitochondrion still has its own genome, which means that all complex cells have at least two different genomes. So we've got the main one in the nucleus of the cell, plus the mitochondrial genome. So when we have this process, uh, one cell living inside another, that's known as endosymbiosis. Yes, and around a billion years ago, it happened again when one complex cell acquired a photosynthetic bacterium. And that event gave rise to all plant cells with the photosynthetic bacterium becoming a chloroplast. And a chloroplast has also kept its own genome. Mm. So all plant cells have got three different genomes. Okay, so the three genomes are the different kinds of genome, right? Because, you know, there's lots of copies in each organism. Yeah, we're not counting the copies. We're just counting the different types. There can be thousands of copies of the mitochondrial chloroplast genomes. Okay, so plant cells have got these three distinct genomes. And this alga has these extra two endosymbiotic bacteria and the virus. So that's six. Where's where's number seven? Ah, so that is because even though this thing is called an alga, it's not actually a plant cell. So cryptomonad (laughs) algae, they actually started out as these free-swimming predatory cells. And at some point, they gained the ability to photosynthesize by engulfing not a bacterium, but an entire plant cell in the form of red alga. Okay. So this is where it gets really complicated. So the (laughs) nucleus of that red algae has been retained alongside its chloroplast, which means that all cryptomonads have got four different genomes. They've got their main genome and their cell nucleus. They've got the shrunken remains of the red alga nucleus. They've got their mitochondrion and they've got their chloroplast. So then you add the extra three of the two endosymbiotic bacteria and the virus, and you've got seven in total. That's an absolutely extraordinary uh, mixture here going on. What about the virus? So inside the bacteria, well, one of the bacteria has got a virus inside it, and that is being passed on when the the cryptomonad host divides. So the virus is is kind of not completely pathogenic then, like we expect viruses to be. Yeah, we don't know for sure why it's not killing off the the bacterium it's infecting inside these cells, but it actually looks from its uh, genome as though it's actually helping the bacterium interact with the cryptomonad host. So it may actually be one of these rare symbiotic viruses that actually Mm. helps its host rather than than hindering it. And what about the other symbiotic, endosymbiotic bacteria? 
That's not clear yet. Emma George is trying to find out, but she thinks that these bacteria have been inside these uh, cryptomonads for at least 4,000 generations since the first sample was collected. So that suggests there must be some kind of interdependence going on. So that must be a record, is it? Seven dis- different genomes in one cell? Yeah, that's definitely the record. The, the most that have been confirmed before is six, but, but George was telling me that she's pretty certain we're going to find other cells that beat this record. Wow. Okay, we've got some COVID news, which is something we've not actually said for a while on the pod. I mean, many people still think of COVID-19 as a respiratory infection, but its impact can extend well beyond our airways and into the gut. And Alexandra, you've been working on a special report about this. Yes, I have. So a 2020 study found that up to one in five people with COVID-19 report having some gastrointestinal related symptoms, whether it be diarrhea abdominal pain, loss of appetite, which I experienced, or nausea and vomiting. And are those symptoms linked to an you know, increased risk of getting a severe dose of COVID or, or even dying of it? The symptoms haven't. However, disruption to the microbiome has. So a team at the Chinese University of Hong Kong has been analysing the stool samples of people with the virus from early on in the pandemic. And they found that disruption to the microbiome, which They measured by an increase in these so-called harmful bacteria and a depletion in helpful bacteria is linked to more severe COVID-19 and potentially even death. So it sounds like we don't know exactly what's to blame here. Even years into the pandemic, why is it so hard to figure out how the virus can impact our gut? Because so many systems interact in our gut. You've got the walls of the gut producing enzymes that digest our food, The gut is home to trillions of microorganisms that make up our microbiome. Our gut influences our immune health. It even has connections to the brain. And all this interconnectivity makes it really hard to tease out what is causing what. What's the leading theory as to what's going on? Probably the ACE2 receptor, which the coronavirus binds to when infecting cells. And this receptor is more common in the gut than the lungs. But there isn't strong evidence to suggest that the virus replicates in the gut. It could be that by binding to this receptor, there's disruption of nutrient uptake because ACE2 is involved in the uptake of the essential amino acid tryptophan. And gut issues we know are, or can be, an ongoing issue with with long COVID, can't they? Yes, a 2021 study of people hospitalised for COVID-19 found that 16% of them had gastrointestinal complications more than 100 days after they were discharged. And do we know why? Well, one study found the virus's genetic material in the guts of people with long COVID, but the researchers couldn't grow the virus from the samples. So are they causing inflammation? Are they affecting the nerve ending somehow, affecting the microbiome, potentially impacting the permeability of the gut wall? We just don't know. So that's not helping us develop uh, any effective treatment with all these unknowns, is it? Well, people have suggested probiotics and faecal transplants, but the evidence isn't really there to support these treatments. Mm. Clinical trials are ongoing, so hopefully we'll have results fairly soon. Okay, thanks, Alexandra. And as I said, there's um, you've been working on a long special report on this for the magazine, and uh, that's by science writer Michael Marshall. And we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now uh, it's time. (laughs) (laughs) it's time for those lovely grunting noises um, and life form of the week i'm not sure i even want to know what was making those sounds 
Uh, well, it sounds a very pig-like when you listen to it like that, but uh, they're elephant seals, male elephant seals, alpha males, grunting at each other by way of assessment of their, each other's size prior to potentially, you know, having a scrap. Wow, they certainly sound like fine physical specimens. I'm sure if I were a female elephant seal, I wouldn't be able to control myself. I think <laughs> they are doing this to fight over females. And, and uh, yeah. when you say that alpha males doing it, does that mean beta males don't do this grunting? Well, you know, I, you know, as a male, I'll have to say all males grunt. You know, it's what we do. Um, <laughs> so the beta males do it as well. But the alphas are, you know, they do it in a bit, in a deeper and stronger way, and they have to do it really to to fight uh, to secure groups of females. You know. Uh, in, in this paper that's just come out, they, they call them harems. That's what biologists call um, groups of females that are controlled by males. But it does strike me that we need a different name for, for this now because, yeah, harem doesn't seem quite right. But, um, yeah, this week we're featuring them because this study shows that males with the largest harems end up dying younger than those with uh, with fewer females in them. Yeah, so I, it kind of makes sense. I mean, are they expending a lot of energy or or like going yeah trying to control the females or yeah i mean they the harems range in size from five to 50 females so one male has to sort of uh try to fence off effectively this whole group of females um, and you get subordinate males <laughs> creeping along the beach i'm just thinking of humans doing this mm. creeping along the beach trying to mate with some of the females we've all there. seen it <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, the alpha male has to defend all of these. Rivals are constantly trying to, you know, coming to challenge him. These They're not called elephant seals for nothing. You know, they're, they're five tons. And so they, they, you know, they have terrible fights, covered, often seen covered in blood. And they don't eat during the, the breeding season at all. So they're just, you know, lolling around on the beach, fighting and mating with females for, you know, months at a time. And one of the biologists who's been studying these is Kyle Lloyd at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. He noticed this weight loss and the loss of body condition and found that it was especially those males that had the most females. And then looking back through 34 years of records of the elephant seal population, he found that the males died younger when they had these bigger harems. So males those males usually survive to eight or 10 years old, whereas the females lived you know, about 20 years. But I guess it might be worth it as a strategy if they mm. have more offspring. I suppose it's like live fast, die young. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, a successful male may father up to 200 pups in those eight years of burning brightly. Um, but yeah, don't then you burn out. Um, but the subordinate males, surprisingly, those ones without a harem, they had even lower survival rates than the dominant males. Oh, why is that? Well, I asked Kyle this and, you know, he said, we, well, basically, we don't really know. It could be genetics, um, you know, as most seals are fathered by these alpha males. So that might be it. Um, but there's a few other potential things it could be. So we, we need to look into it. You'll be pleased to know that's all the grunting seals for this week. Uh, thanks to our guests, Michael LePage and Alexandra Thompson. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Rowan Hooper. And I'm Claire Wilson. Do subscribe to our show and tell your friends all about it. And we'll see you soon. Bye for now. Bye. 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 This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 